If you haven't been with us uh, for a while or for this summer, I'll get you up to speed. We've been in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 all summer. Uh, we've had lots of breaks and interruptions due to special services or summer travel, but we began 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in May when I looked back. I was surprised to see that. And this Sunday is the final passage of this chapter about marriage and singleness and issues related to marriage and singleness. Um, so I haven't just been obsessed with the topic. I'm committed to working through 1 Corinthians. Uh, each summer we move forward. And this summer has just been a particularly strange one in that we haven't been able to move real far. But I trust the Lord's sovereignty over these things. I trust that this is what he has wanted us to dwell on this summer. And so we're going to be studying 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 36 through 40. This chapter, if we will allow it to fully form the way we think about marriage and singleness and the issues related to these things, it could be transformative for us as people. It could be transformative for the way uh, we approach our marriages. It could be transformative for our singleness, for our uh, widowhood or widowerhood, for uh, the way we process and uh, reflect on and approach marital issues, damaging issues, uh, marital history. It can be really formative for the way we teach the next generation coming up about marriage and singleness. So it's really profitable. It's a very transformative chapter of Scripture, and uh, it's been good to spend all this time in it. It's programming us to think about these human relationships in light of eternity, whereas typically we tend to think about them in, in light of just the day-to-day and temporary factors. But it helps us to zoom out and look at it from the eternal perspective. Now, we need to pray together. We always do, but we especially do this Sunday because it's a really difficult passage. Now, don't, let, don't despair. Hopefully, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a really difficult sermon for you to listen to. But it is a really difficult passage, and I'll explain why after we pray. But before we get into it, let's ask for God's help. Father, we don't just need your help. It's not as though we are doing something and we can almost handle it. We just need a little assistance from you. We need you to just take over. We need you to supernaturally open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to your word. We need you to override all of our selfish and fleshly and sinful resistance to submitting to your word. We need you to enlighten us to understand it. But not only to understand it, to receive it and be transformed by it. I need your help to be helpful to your people Lord, let these moments together be valuable, eternally beneficial to us as we receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's why it's a difficult passage. Verses 36 through 38 are really hard to translate from Greek into English with any certainty about them. Several of the words and phrases can be taken in, one of, in either of two different ways, and the experts aren't sure which way is correct. So you have some translations that translate this passage, and it sounds as though he's talking to betrothed men, 
as though he's talking to men who are engaged to be married to women. Other translations translated into English, and it sounds as though he's talking to fathers of unmarried women. And we don't know for sure which one. I really hoped to be sure by the time I preached, and I just, I'm not sure which one. People way smarter than me uh, have landed on either side. So my plan is that we'll just read it in light of the uncertainties, and I'll point them out to you as, as we move along, and I'll preach just the certainties, because there are things in here that we can be sure of, and that's what we're going to major on. Okay, does that sound good to you? I guess if not, you'll just have to walk out mid-sermon, which would be really rude. Before we do read it, though, I do want to point out, either way, it mainly pertains to people who are not married, either because they're not yet married or they're not going to be married because they're called to singleness. And for those of you who are married and already married, you may feel as though this isn't applicable to you, but I promise it is. It'll help you understand your own marriages, for one thing, but maybe more importantly, it'll equip you to be a wise counselor to people who are still trying to figure out if they are to get married, when should they get married. Now, this might be your children. It might be your grandchildren. It might be nieces and nephews. It might be nobody biologically related to you. It might be your, your first and more important family, your church family, younger brothers and sisters in Christ. It might be people who are in middle school today, years, le- years down the road. You may be in a mentorship position in their lives, and they're coming to you seeking advice. Should I be dating? I've been, I've been getting to know this young man, this young woman for a while. Should I think about marriage? This is going to equip us to be wise counselors. So let's read the passage. And I'll sort of point out the uh, ambiguities as we go, and hopefully this won't be uh, hard to follow. So we'll start in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, that word betrothed is literally the word virgin. Now, in their culture, the word virgin was synonymous with unmarried person. They didn't have a culture where people were openly unmarried yet not virgins like we do. Not our church culture, but our American culture. So right there is already a little bit of ambiguity. Sometimes that word is used for someone who is betrothed, something like our engagement. Sometimes it's just used for an unmarried person, either male or female. Often it's used for a father's unmarried daughter. So right now we don't have enough information to know for sure exactly what he means by using this word. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, now here again is ambiguity. In, in the original language, we're not sure if it means if his passions are strong, if it means if her passions are strong, if it means if, uh, if she is past the bloom of youth. That's another possible translation of this word. Uh, the word literally is the prefix for beyond coupled together with the word for maturity. So a more literal reading would be if he or she, maybe more likely, is past maturity. 
if she's past the, the bloom of youth, if she's getting older? We're not sure. So ESV puts it, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, or it ought to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. There, that syntax almost makes sense with the father theory. Let them marry as if it's other people. But then it doesn't make sense because his passions are the ones that might be strong. It's very confusing. Verse, um, let them marry, it is no sin. Verse 37. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, could also be translated having authority over his own will, and has determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed. Now here's another troublesome phrase. It could also be translated, literally it's three words, keep himself virginity. And so we're not sure if he's, if, if he's talking about betrothed people. It could also be taken in the sense of telling a father, you can keep your, your daughter, your unmarried daughter, unmarried. But the ESV says, keep her as his betrothed. He will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. More ambiguity in this verse. Often... That word translated married is translated give in marriage. So some major translations have it, so then he who gives in marriage does well, and he who refrains from giving in marriage will do even better. So are you confused? If you're confused, it probably means you are following me because it's a confusing, it's a confusing bit of Scripture. Most Scripture is straightforward. Most Scripture, you don't have these kinds of issues. Sometimes we do, and it's good to just... Be honest about them and address them. Verses 39 and 40 are straightforward, and we can read those without comment. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So here's our passage. What can we say with certainty? I'm not going to dwell on the uncertainties because I'm just not, I'm not a Greek expert. I'm just not equipped for that. But what can we say with certainty? Three things at least, and there's three that I'm going to highlight this morning. Number one, there is a time to let them marry. There is a time to let them marry, to let people get married. And I'll explain what I mean in a minute. Number two, Christian singleness is a firm stance. Christian singleness is a firm stance. I'll explain that one in a minute, too. And number three, the most straightforward of all three, marriage is for life. Marriage is for life. Now, though these may seem disconnected, these three points, there is a, a strand that connects all three of them, and it's been through this entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 7. Christians, we are to take the matters of singleness and marriage very seriously. It's nothing to take lightly. We're to be thoughtful, prayerful, and biblical in light of these things. In our family, we joke around a lot. Our kids are really goofy and funny, and we laugh a lot, and we joke around a lot. Occasionally, uh, somebody will start to joke about something that's just 
too serious to really make into a joke. It's easy to do. We all do it, and we'll remind each other, okay, let's not joke about that. Some things are too serious. Some things are serious. We're a very casual society, but some things are serious, and the issues of singleness and marriage are serious. And as Christians, we should think about them seriously. And you know this. Um, we can't be casual about this. Some of life's greatest joys are found in connection to our singleness or our marriages. And some of life's absolute worst heartache is found in connection to our singleness or our marriage. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe are experiencing some of these highs or, or extreme lows right now. So it's a serious topic to be thought about seriously. So our first point that we can know, that we can look at with certainty from this passage, there's a time to let them marry. Let's look back at verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry It is no sin. Now, either way, whether this is to fathers or to betrothed men, either way, what's in view here is there is the potential to mistreat unmarried people. Particularly, I think, in in view of this passage, there is a way to mistreat unmarried women, whether they're your daughters, your fiancés, your girlfriend, or which they did not really have that category back in this culture. There's one specific way to treat them improperly that's in view in this passage, regardless of which translation is accurate. And that is to block or delay marriage from them needlessly. What this verse means, either way you look at it, is that it's improper if you have authority or influence over particularly a young unmarried woman, it's improper to block or delay them from getting married without good reason. Now, how can this happen? This probably seems like a a tangent, just a, a point that doesn't even need to be said, but it can happen. And I'll give you two examples of how. One, from the parent's perspective. Parents can needlessly block or delay marriage to their children By taking an unbalanced view of what makes them prepared to get married. Now, there are practical considerations that need to be thought through before a young couple gets married. But I've seen cases uh, in which parents who, through trying to be loving and careful with their children, continually discourage them from getting married. Not until you graduate college. Not until you get firmly established in your career. Not until you own your own home. Not until all your debt is taken care of. Now, admittedly, I think all that is is great to have in place before you get married lots of times. But not necessarily every time. There are other considerations. Now, there's two possible ones mentioned in this verse. And I'll just mention both of them to you. I think they're both valid. valid. I'm not sure which one he's talking about. One possible consideration is the reality of sexual temptation. Now, when when parents insist or teach their children that they need to wait, they need to wait, they need to wait to get married until they're more mature, until they're older, until their life's in place, 
they might fail to be sensitive to the fact that their child, their son or their daughter, is living in an extremely charged culture, and they might be exposing them to an incredible amount of temptation that they may not be able to handle. And so the only factor isn't just life situation, but also this issue of temptation. We need to be sensitive to that as well. You know, another possibility for what Paul may be addressing, how this is improper, is if that should be translated instead of his passions are strong, if it should be translated she's beyond the, uh, or getting beyond the bloom of youth, as one translates it, age could be a consideration. Now, this one gets more toward a second way this can happen. So, through parents is one way, but through uh, the relationship with uh, the, if it's betrothal with the fiancé or with the boyfriend or girlfriend, again, not terminology they would have used, this kind of improper treatment can take place as well. I had a conversation with a young man not that long ago, and uh, because I'm a pastor, he was coming to me for advice, and it was, advi- it was relationship advice. And he was in high school, and he was dating a, a young woman also in high school, and it just sounded like a disastrous relationship. Nothing about it sounded positive. They fought all the time. They halfway hated each other. It was a, it was a mess. And I'm trying to hear him out, trying to listen, and you know, I'm not a relationship guru by any means. And finally, I just asked him, why are you even dating her? And he had no idea. It hadn't even occurred to him to ask himself that question. He said, I don't know. I said, well, why are you dating, period? Not even just her. Why are you even dating? He's like, that question couldn't even compute. The thought that we should even have a reason for dating didn't compute. Finally, he stumbled around and he came up with, well, I like the way it's fun. I like the way she makes me feel. I like the way it feels to have a girlfriend. That's a terrible, terrible reason to be dating. Aimless dating is a way to improperly treat single people. Now take that on, and I think we've all probably been aware of situations in which uh, a man and a, a young man and a young woman are together. Maybe they were high school sweethearts. I don't know. They, they stay together through college. They stay together through uh, early adulthood into the 20s, and she's just waiting for a proposal, waiting for a proposal, not knowing that he's not thinking about marriage. He doesn't care about marriage. He's He likes keeping it casual like it is, and maybe he'll stay, and maybe he'll go. And then one day he does go. And maybe by this point she's deep into her 30s or 40s. He's treated her improperly by wasting her youth through this unintentional mindset toward dating. Aimless dating is so dangerous. Now, I know many of you are thinking, well, I'm not dating anybody. I've been married for 70 years. But you guys who are older, who have been married for quite a while, you're the ones, you're the sources of wisdom and guidance about these things for the younger generations. Not just the younger generations of your own family, your grandchildren, your children, your great-grandchildren maybe, but the younger generations of our church. 
Now, I think one of the worst things, that's not one of the worst things, it's a pet peeve, is when I hear an adult joking with a young child, you got a girlfriend at school, you got a boyfriend at school. Now, I know that's innocent. I know they don't mean to, to indoctrinate them with a false view of how these relationships work. But I think it's part of this bigger picture where we ingrain in our younger generations a, a weirdly casual attitude toward this whole arena. It's serious. It's an, impo- an unpopular view, and I'm sure I'll deal with it with my children and uh, the, my youth groups have never quite seen eye to eye with me on it, but I really don't see any purpose in dating until you're ready to be asking the question, should I marry this person? Now, I'm not saying you should, you should just get married without getting to know somebody, but if, if you're not thinking about marriage, what are you doing? Now, friendships are good, but when we talk to our, our teenage children, grandchildren, youth group members, we need to just speak in a biblically informed way, not just the way our culture views it. When we deal with our children, we don't just need to prepare them for graduation, college, work, getting a car, insurance. We need to prepare them to think biblically about singleness and marriage. We don't just need to let them float along by the world's standards about these things. And we don't need to treat them improperly in any way or allow them to treat others improperly in any way. So the first thing we see with certainty is that there is a time to let them marry. That's how he ends this thought. If either the passions are strong or they're getting beyond the bloom of youth and they want to get married, I think implied here is that they're both Christians, then let them marry. The next thing that we see with certainty is Christian singleness is a firm stance. And I'll read the verses where this comes from and I'll explain it. Verses 37 and 38. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control and has determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Did you see how intentional this language is? It's it's language of intentionality. Whoever is firmly established in his heart Whoever is standing firm in his heart about these things. Whoever is being under no necessity, they're free from being out of control to the temptations of this world and to their bodies and their flesh. Having his desire under control, having authority over his own will, being determined in his heart, having judged and decided after weighing things, praying through things, seeking counsel. In other words... Singleness is not just the consolation prize for those who weren't able to be married. Often that's the way we treat it in our modern church culture, but that's not how Paul saw it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just a consolation prize for those who couldn't get married. It was a calling. It was a calling. You know, I went through a great deal of prayer and seeking counsel before I stepped into this role as your pastor. And I came to the conviction that this is my calling. Marriage is a calling. Singleness is a calling. 
Either one is not to be entered into lightly. Both require prayerful, thoughtful, biblical, wise discretion. Now, this means several things for us. One, I think we need a a paradigm shift in how we think about family and singleness and marriage as a church. Firmly established Christian singleness is not just valid. In many ways, it's better even than Christian marriage. And I'll review some of the ways Paul states this in, our, in 1 Corinthians 7. Remember back in verses 6 through 9, he said, after instructing about marriage relationships, he says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Remember what he said in verses 25 through 26. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. And down in verse 28, if you do not marry, you, I mean, if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Last week's passage, verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And in just a few minutes, we're going to see where Paul tells widows and widowers, you can get remarried, but I think you'll be happier if you don't. We need to be open to this calling of singleness as a church. We need to be careful that we don't elevate the American dream of a nuclear family above the kingdom dream, of generations coming up who are undividedly devoted to the Lord, whether in marriage or singleness. We need to be careful not to build and orient our church life around nuclear families to the degree that people who are not part of a nuclear family feel outcast or as if they have no place. We need to keep in mind that Jesus said that as a Christian— Our brotherhood in Christ, our relationship as a family of God, is eternal. Whereas our relationships in in our families are temporal. They're temporary. We need to take marriage seriously, but we don't need to elevate it into idolatry. We need to take our families seriously, but we don't need to elevate them to the point of idolatry. How could you know? You take yourself back, you who are married, to that time period where you're trying to figure these things out. How can you know if you're called 
to singleness. How can you know if you're called to anything for that matter? How can you know if you're called to marriage? The language of verses 37 through 38 is the language of certainty, conviction, firmly established, standing firm in the heart. I think with prayer, counsel, walking in the Spirit, walking in light of the Word, we can grow in confidence in our callings, whatever they may be, including in regard to marriage and singleness. Now, I know some of you, you're married already, and, but this is the way we should speak to our children about these things. This is the way we should speak to our grandchildren about these things. This is the way we should speak to the next generations of our church about these things. It's not an assumed thing that you need to be dating and getting married. Maybe you need to be staying single. The only way we can know is if we're very prayerful about it. If we live in light of the word, if we seek a lot of good advice from people about it. But you can know. I do believe that you can know. I know for my calling getting married to Meredith and my calling coming to be your pastor, I didn't do either until I was certain. Certainty is possible. I heard a notion once that it'll, it'll be all right in the end, so if it's not all right, it must not be the end. Now, that's not a strictly biblical sentiment, but I think that general idea holds true here. I think the Lord will give you certainty in the end. And if you're not certain right now, then it's not the end. Don't give up. Have hope. Keep praying. Keep seeking counsel. He loves you. He loves your kids. He loves your grandkids, nieces, nephews. He loves the young people of your neighborhood and your family. He loves the young people of our church. There's a time to let them marry. Christian singleness is a firm stance. And lastly, and the most simple, marriage is for life. Verses 39 and 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Just think for a minute about the utter seriousness of the phrase, till death do us part. Till death do us part. Those are some of the most serious things people have ever said to each other. I will bind myself to you in marriage until death do us part. Now, Paul has walked through a number of different scenarios in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He said, married people, you should not separate or divorce. He said, divorced people, you should reconcile with your ex-spouse or remain single. He has said, if you're married to an unbeliever, you should not divorce. He has said, if you're married to an unbeliever who wants to leave you, you should not cling to them. He has said, if you're married to a spouse who dies, you're free to remarry. And that's the point he makes in these verses. If you are a widow or a widower, or if you ever find yourself in that situation, your spouse dies before you do, you are free to remarry. It's like a dishonorable dish. I mean, no, 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 no. It's like an honorable discharge. You're not betraying your wife or your husband who's passed away if you remarry. You're not betraying your children and you're not betraying the Lord. 
This is the way he designed marriage to work. There are illegitimate ways out of a marriage, and there's legitimate ways out of a marriage. The legitimate way is death. Now, for some of you, you think, well, life is not long enough. And you're upset by that because you wish that you could hang on to your marriage into eternity. And when Jesus teaches, you know, in heaven that people aren't going to be given in marriage, that upsets you because your marriage has been so, such a blessing to you. Others of you hear this, and it feels like a life sentence. And that word bound, in verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband, rings true. And this gets back to the point at the beginning. This is why these things are so serious. Some of our greatest joys and our most agonizing heartache comes through singleness and marriage. Some of us, we, our our people, people here, have been hurt so deeply, both through singleness and through marriage. Mistakes they've made, awful sin others have perpetrated against them. It gets so complicated. Paul's writing to the Corinthian Christians. I think he knew their situations. God inspired these words through the Holy Spirit and brought us all here for me to proclaim this word to you this morning. I know he knows our situations. And wherever you are in relation to these things, I I am not gifted enough a preacher to preach about these things with enough nuance to be sensitive to every situation, every history represented in this room. But wherever you are, let's land where we always must land in the grace of Jesus Christ. I did not do singleness perfectly when I was single, and I have not done marriage perfectly now that I'm married. My security and my peace does not rest in my flawless record in regard to singleness and marriage. It rests alone in Jesus Christ's grace for me, and that's the same for you as well. And so what I'd like to read in closing is Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite passages. I'll start at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You're being prayed for right now. Jesus Christ is mediating for you. The Holy Spirit prays for you in ways you can't even understand. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All the things in your history and in your present situation, God works together for your good. If you love him and are called according to his purposes. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many, among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God has always had great things in mind for you. Those great things don't always translate into pleasant life circumstances. And they don't always translate into clean, easy-to-understand relationships and situations. But you can rest assured If you are a Christian, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, 
He predestined you, called you, justified you, and is glorifying you. In other words, preparing you for that resurrection when he returns. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That is an awesome, awesome promise. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And the implied answer is no, none of these things. None of these things. We can add to that list loneliness. We can add to that list regret. We can add to that list agonizing tension in our home. We can add to that list uncertainty about tomorrow and next week and next month and next year. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think that's a good note to end on. Let's pray. Father, thank you for teaching us the practical insights from your eternal perspective that help us navigate our lives and our relationships and our decisions. But even more importantly than that, thank you so much for your mercy and grace toward us because we mess these things up so badly. Lord, thank you for your forgiveness through Christ. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for how you put us back together and patch us up and make us whole again through Christ. I just ask for each and every one of us, we're all coming from different places, different perspectives, different um, situations, that you would guide us in how we should move forward in light of these things we've heard from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Or may you be glorified in our singleness. May you be glorified in our marriages. May you be glorified in the way we move forward through the messes that we have made and others have made in our lives. May you be glorified by the upcoming generations of our church who have yet to begin thinking about these things. And may you help us to guide them well. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.